my God, will this not end? Will this not end? This is driving me nuts. Um, <laughs> and probably you too. At this point, you've stopped listening. But listen again, because it's time for the Living Writers Show. It's 429. Uh, but first, I'll tell you what y'all been listening to. This is the Atchison, Atchison, yeah, Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe. Before that was Idan with The Science of the Two. The Easy Star All-Stars with Money from the Dub Side of the Moon. Fats Domino with Blueberry Hill. Earl Hooker with Everything Gonna Be Alright. And of course we started out the set with Jimi Hendrix, People's People. Well, it's been a lovely show, and uh, we'll now switch it on over to the folks at the Living Writers Show. So, tune in again next week, and don't forget to call in later for tickets to see Final Destination 3. Woo! Peace, Hanover. Welcome to the Living Writers Show. My name is Ashley David, and you're tuned into WCBN FM Ann Arbor. We'll be with you for the next 45 minutes. And today, my guest is the writer Nicholas Del Banco, author of more than 20 books, um, which he began publishing in 1966. So that's one book every two years. It's a phenomenal amount of output. Um, Books that include The Martlet's Tale, which was the first novel, Sappho Burning, In the Name of Mercy, What Remains, Old Scores, The Countess of Stanline Restored, Running in Place, Scenes from the South of France, which is a travel book about the South of France, The Lost Suitcase, Reflections on the Literary Life, a collection of stories. Most recently, the nonfiction includes Anywhere Out of the World, Essays on Travel, Writing, Death. And the most recent novel, The Vagabonds, that we'll be talking about today is just out in paperback. Del Banco is also the recipient of numerous awards and honors, including two national endowment for the Arts Creative Writing Fellowships, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and he is the founding director of the Bennington Writing Workshops, has been the director of the MFA program here at the University of Michigan, and is still the chair of the Hopwood Award Committee. Wow. <laughs> Welcome. It's such a treat to have you here. You're sort of um, local, but so not local. <laughs> Thank you. It's lovely to see you in this context also and to hear you. Well, we what we normally do on the show is we just dive right into some writing um, and so that folks can hear the voice of the author. And so I'm wondering if you'll give us a little context or background about your most recent novel, The Vagabonds, and then read a bit from it. For, from it for us? It would actually take a lot of context and background to get to the page you've asked me to read from, which is 199 in a not-so-short novel. I think all I want to say at this moment is that though I've been living in Ann Arbor for 20 years, uh, I never felt until this novel able to write about it or competent to be a fictive witness to it. So this time I dared to put a character in Ann Arbor, one of the principal players calls it home, and she's a woman, uh, one of three siblings, called Claire. It's a determinedly um, 
various novel in terms of its geography is perhaps The Vagabonds. As title suggests, one of the siblings lives on the extreme west coast, which is to say in Berkeley, California. One of them lives on the extreme east coast, which is to say in Wellfleet, Massachusetts, at the outer edge of Cape Cod. And Claire, who's the middle child, lives as close to the middle as I know well in America. At this moment, uh, she's in trouble. Her husband, Jim, has left her uh, on a trip to Florida, uh, but it's not merely a geographical separation. He's also declared that he wants out of the marriage, and predictably enough, I suppose, uh, although it's meant to come as a surprise, he dies. So the part that I'm going to read from is when she goes for the first time in her life from Detroit Metro down to Florida, and I will uh, pick this up at that part of the trip where she drives out to where his body is and to collect him. She does not feel welcome, however. She's traveling through Florida to bring her husband home. All around her, she sees seabirds and uninviting strips of shore, and there are gas stations and video and convenience stores and banks. In Bradenton, the road winds past Manatee Memorial, where Jim had been a patient, where he was treated and released and collapsed inside the pickup door. She slows, but doesn't stop. There's a store called Piggly Wiggly, and something called the Chop Shop, and signs for furniture and funeral homes and insurance companies. Then the traffic reduces, dispersing, and she comes upon a causeway with cars parked by the water and people on deck chairs or fishing. The radio is telling her that manatees are dying along the island waterway in unprecedented numbers, and environmentalists are pressing for a ban on motorboats and aquaskis. The sea cow will be endangered if the present trend continues, and Florida cannot afford to lose its population of manatees, its weed-eaters in the inland waterway. But seriously, folks, says the announcer, They're worth their weight in weeds. If it wasn't for the holy sea cow, we'd have golf courses instead of canals. It would be Algae Avenue all down this part of the world. But seriously, folks, he repeats, another name for manatee is dugong, and its scientific name is, get this, Order Serenia. I asked our Mr. Wizard, and he says it got its moniker, get this, because if you happen to be nearsighted or had an extra tot of rum, the sea cow resembles a mermaid, a foxy siren lady to sailors far from home. The announcer makes a joke about the manatee as a man tees, and then the music resumes. She reaches a town called Holmes Beach. There are signs to Anna Maria Island and signs to Longboat Key. At the intersection, Claire turns left. Although she has the right of way and is driving carefully, she almost has an accident. She jams on the brakes not a yard away from a white Cadillac that neither slows nor stops. The other car is enormous, a 1960s Eldorado with fins, with ornamental wire wheel rims and a mounted tire casing painted red. When she brakes, she sees an ancient lady at the wheel wearing a Yankee baseball cap and a dog at the rear window snarling, paws scrabbling at the pane. The driver doesn't acknowledge her but continues down the center of the road. Shaken, Claire pulls into the parking lot of a grocery store called Publix, and turns off the engine and waits. A school bus rumbles by, a man in a wheelchair wheels past. She tries to calm her breathing and, after some minutes, succeeds. 
She starts the rental car again and makes her way across the bridge to Longboat Quay. Mimi Lowenthal has faxed her a set of instructions, and the apartment isn't hard to find, a gated complex by the bay with a golf course and a swimming pool and men standing at attention in the guardhouse. Claire gives her name, and they direct her to the manager's office, where she's made welcome and provided with a parking sticker and a set of keys. The manager is bald and brown, with prominent gold-filled teeth. He smiles ingratiatingly and offers her the code for the elevator and a description of the facilities and services in the complex. Will that be all? he asks. Clara nods. You're kind, she says. You're very kind. De nada. The manager consults his checklist. Does madame wish assistance with the bags? She tells him no. She's packed a single overnight bag and asks herself if she should tip him, if he expects to be paid for his courtesy, and decides probably not. For an instant, acutely, she misses Jim. He would have understood. Her husband would have handled this, but now she has to do so alone, her stomach a flutter at how to proceed. The manager opens the door and points her to the parking space and then to building three. Wonderful. Thank you very much. John Updike has said in an interview in reference to, I believe... um, Well, I'm not sure which of your earlier pieces, but he said that um, you wrestle with the abundance of your gifts as a novelist the way other men wrestle with their deficiencies. And um, I was telling you this morning before we started the interview that um, I'm just sort of amazed at the breadth and the, 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 the ground that you cover. This particular novel covers much ground. It covers much time. Um, but your first novel uh, was based on a biblical tale, the Martlet's tale. And um, the next, Sappho Burning, was... Um, a whole other territory. Then we moved into the, I mean, in the name of mercy, you, you're in a, a medical suspense thriller. And then you're nonfiction. You're in Namibia. You're in the south of France. You are all over the place. I'm wondering how you think about approaching your subject. And um, you can filter that question through the, the vagabonds, if you like, to, to talk about how you came to the vagabonds. But um, the world is large, and you have not demarcated any boundaries in, within which you're going to stay. Well, as you disconcertingly demonstrated uh, in the summary with which we opened, I've been at this for a very long time. And at a certain point in a writer's career, um, in order to avoid the deep paralysis of repetition, uh, I think you really do have to shift ground in order to keep going. And my own best sense of things is that I belong to that tribe of writers, Updike is certainly one and an exemplary one, I think, uh, who do try to do something a little different each time they set out from the starting blocks. There are certain writers, and I admire them very much. I mean, think of Hemingway or Faulkner, and indeed, in many ways, it's the uh, (coughs) way to establish a career. Um, They pick out a certain way of being in the world, a certain territory to cover, a certain vein to mine, and stay with it. Uh, going ideally ever deeper. There are other kinds of writers, and I suppose in the last century the exemplary instance was James Joyce, who try something totally different each time they begin. In my much smaller uh, way, I've followed Joyce's lead, attempting to set myself new 
problems. Uh, among other things, it's how to remain interested. If you're going to write a book about the restoration of a very great cello, for instance, you have to know more um, than you otherwise might about how cellos are made and what the music entails. If you're going to write about Namibia, you'd better damn well get there. <laughs> um, Good excuse to go. <laughs> and so I have relatively consciously tried to shift ground in order to cover it. The Vagabonds was a book that I came to, in a sense, by happy accident. Some of the audience may know that that term is not accidental. It's what uh, Henry Ford and Thomas Edison and uh, Harvey Firestone called themselves when they went out on their camping trips. They consciously also covered a great deal of ground going uh, one year to the far west, one year to the far south, one year to the north, actually <coughs> the north of Michigan. Um, but one year, uh, I'm talking now about the period 1916 to 1923, 25, when they took their last trips. They went to a part of the world that I used to call home, New England and upper New York State. And um, I found this out, and it fired my imagination. The real reason I knew about it is that the what used to be called the Henry Ford Museum in Greenfield Village and now is the Ford Museum in Toto, has a collection, uh, obviously, of the um, wanderings of Henry Ford. He was a great accumulator. Uh, I think, indeed, they're their holdings are larger than the Smithsonian. There's almost nothing in America that he didn't want to own and preserve. And in some ways, what interested me so much about them was that if you think about Ford, Edison, and Firestone, you can hardly imagine a trio of people who knew each other who shaped the, the who changed the face of the nation more than did those three, I suppose. Next century, when we're out in cyberspace, uh, there'll be another kind of trio, maybe the three who started Microsoft. But, um, but then they really did change the face of what turned out to be a countryside that they loved and wished to preserve. So at the same time as Ford was um, altogether altering the contours of the country, he was doing his level best to collect and retain it. And these camping trips, uh, for which they were vagabonds, I mean, there's something a little comic about them. They they would go out and not shave and see who could cut down a tree faster than the next guy. But, of course, 50 yards behind, the hammocks that they slung um, were 50 body servants and a wagon load of provisions uh, with That's which they ate. rugged their, sort of right. camping trip. <laughs> <laughs> you can still see there... Um, uh, photographs of their of their camping table and the various servants standing at attention for a while. Warren G. Harding and Calvin Coolidge went along. It's not every bunch of hobos that can claim presidents. Anyway, uh, I found that out here about 20 years ago because I had a great friend who was then the president of the museum and who asked me to curate a little show on the vagabonds. And in some ways that didn't leave. It stayed stuck like a burr in the back of my brain, and I kept uh, trying to dislodge it, uh, which is one of the ways you discover whether you have a subject or not. 
I couldn't, and it became a book. Well, we're going to take a, a short break in just a minute, but I have one little question before our break, which is um, this novel, unlike many of your others, as you mentioned in the introduction, does take place here in Ann Arbor. And in there's lots of fresh material that you just described that you bring to that, but there's also this landscape that is um, very sort of familiar and um, part of your daily life. Did you have to do special things to make that interesting to you, or was it? You mentioned some sort of that it was kind of a, a moment of courage that, that that enabled you to write about Ann Arbor. It's tricky. Uh, in the passage that I just read, um, the data is precise. There is a left turn with a. You can go to Anna Maria Island uh, one way. You can go to. Longboat Key, uh, and the other, there are stores called Publix, uh, Piggly Wiggly, uh, the Chop Shop, et cetera, et cetera. But there, um, as you could tell, this woman was driving through it for the first time and seeing it as a stranger does. It's relatively easy to describe a landscape as a noticing stranger, which is, for instance, what I did with Namibia. It's much harder to describe it with deep-seated knowledge and knowledge that extends over time. Um, the book that you also referred to about the south of France um, was uh, something that recorded, oh, I think maybe 30 years' worth of visits. And the landscape shifts to a person who is uh, really an inhabitant of it. If you walk down State Street for the 5,000th time, it looks different to you than if you walk down at the first. So I had to kind of cut, paste, and trim a little bit. Uh, and I wanted, in this case, to be accurate about Ann Arbor, but not quite the same way as I was, say, about Bradenton or Longboat Key, because um, she's familiar. She belongs there. And you look at things separately as a result. Great. Well, we'll take a short break and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David and my guest today is Nicholas Del Banco. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. My guest today is Nicholas Del Banco. We've been speaking about his most recent novel, The Vagabonds, which is just out in paperback. And we've been talking about the um, challenges and um, windfalls of writing from where you know and writing places that are new to you. 
You have said about your work, um, in specific reference to your first novel, The Martlet's Tale, which takes place in Greece, and your novel, What Remains, which takes place in England, that the overarching subject is inheritance, um, which is also an important subject in The Vagabonds and is a thread that runs through much of your work. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the ways in which inheritance has come to be. You mentioned that uh, the story about the vagabonds became a burr that you couldn't let go of and stuck. Inheritance seems to be one of those as well. Um, Where do you think that comes from? The Martlet's Tale uh, does have um, its backstory, as it were, its original urgency in the Bible, and it is simply a retelling of the parable of the prodigal son. Now, in the case of the prodigal son story, uh, it's an inheritance that the prodigal son requires or asks for um, before his elders die, but I transposed that slightly and and made it quite literally into a treasure um, that a grandmother leaves, uh, a buried treasure for which um, the child might my protagonist, a fellow called Sotiris Prokopirios, uh, hunts. Um, in What Remains, which was a much more personal book and which took me many, many years, decades to dare to write, I really was mining personal experience. In fact, I originally thought of it as plausibly a, a uh, uh, memoir, or memoir, as a friend of mine calls <laughs> it. Um, that was really much more to do with those things that my family and ancestors carried with them and left behind and were brought down to me because at a certain point my beloved uncle uh, died in, in the London in which I was born well into his 90s, and I thought to myself, hmm, that's a world which is fast fading and which I'm still more or less competent to remember and report upon. And if I don't do it now, I probably won't do it. So I wrote a book about what remains to me, in effect. Um, When you have been writing for as long and as often as I, you begin to recognize certain patterns in the prose. And after What Remains, I thought to myself, that's very curious. My first novel uh, was about treasure, in effect, or legacy, and so is my last. And it must be, as it were, uh, an ongoing or recurring occupation, preoccupation. And so I did do this quite consciously. In The Vagabonds, I said, okay, all right, let's face it. Let's make it the subject of the book rather than something that edges in sideways or by accident. As I said, the uh, the years of vagabonding itself were in the late teens um, of the previous century. And one of the things that interests me about Ford, Firestone, Edison, et al., is that they probably, even though they were visionaries, could not have imagined how large their legacy would be, how changed the landscape would be by electric light and roads and cars and our dependence on oil at the present moment and so on and so forth. I mean, no matter how future-facing and and, and broad-visioned they were, I expect they would be surprised by the look of America today. 
So I began to think, I mean, I originally toyed with it as a historical novel in which I would stay in the period, but really what interested me for reasons that I've been trying to make clear had more to do with what's left behind, what happened, what came down through the generations. And the plot of The Vagabonds, which is a relatively intricate one in which I can only invite our listeners to uh, to figure out as they go, has to do with legacy, with, with what, in fact, they left behind and what has come to a trio of present-day siblings. Claire is one of them uh, as a result of their quite literal leaving. Um, so, yes, I I thought now is the time to deal with this consciously. And I went to lawyers and business friends and said, what happens when there's a trust and it comes down through generations and certain provisos are met and certain others are abrogated and so on and so forth. And that became the the stuff of the storyline. One day, in effect, they get called by a lawyer and says, guess what? You know, there's an inheritance here. Anyway, um, with luck, it will not be the subject of my next uh, novel (laughs) because I think I've used it up now. Well, um, let's talk a little bit about that theme, though, not so much in terms of the content of the work, but in terms of the trajectory of your career and Mm -hmm. your um, life as a writer. And you mentioned in the first part of the show that um, Joyce has been one of the people whose lead you've taken, which is to sort of, as opposed to Hemingway and Faulkner, um, who sort of mind a vein deeply, as opposed to trying to do something new every time. Um, So you are very aware, and you teach a class on imitation, you're very aware of... In which all three of those authors are included. Are included, yes. (laughs) And and you're you're very aware, and you make aware to your students, um, the literary legacy from which each of us writes. And you have a daughter who writes and two brothers who write, all of whom are, are well-published. And um, so there's there's a whole sort of um, scene in which you are working as a professional that involves these themes of legacy and mm-hmm. inheritance, both in terms of what you're passing on to your students and to your daughter, um, and in terms of what um, has come down to you. You um, were um, you are the editor of John Gardner's papers and um, were sort of I don't know if the word protege is an appropriate one to use but um, he was the sort of established teacher in Vermont when you were a young um, that's not teacher quite that true point. actually um, I was the I was the fellow who hired Gardner. Oh, gosh, I've got it all backwards. I do apologize. Uh, No, it's fine. I'm his literary executor. That's so. We were, for a while, very close colleagues, and I um, am living with his legacy in that sense still. I don't mean in any sense that, that I was the more important writer than he. Clearly, that wasn't the case but I was the one who off, who brought him to Bennington and who founded the Bennington Writing Workshop writing workshops yes. with him. Um, so we looked at each other more or less across the table. Uh, he wasn't in that sense my teacher, but uh, I certainly learned a lot from him. And, and he, too, was continually invested in the notion of uh, the past and its implications for the present. I mean, I think all writers, I have yet to meet a writer of any consequence uh, or any lastingness 
who wasn't a devoted and, a, and a, even an obsessed reader. Uh, we are all very well educated in that sense in the previous work of words. I don't mean by that that you have to have gone to college or get a PhD, but I do not know a writer who isn't a devoted reader. Uh, they really are flip sides of the single coin. So yes, when I teach a course in imitations or when I teach in general, it's in order to demonstrate to my students uh, that there is a past from for which their present is the active future uh, and that there's a way in which we're all part of a tradition and may as well be conscious of it. The English language has a long and glorious history, and it seems to me merely stupid not to pay attention to it. So um, legacy in that sense um, is, is a lasting one. Uh, look at you know what's happening every Sunday night on PBS now. Bleak House is back. <laughs> um, and I think it, though the performance is a first rate and the show is a faithful and excellent one, that it's a little silly that uh, no one was reading Bleak House until it became a TV show. So I'm here to remind students that Charles Dickens was once alive and at his work desk. <laughs> and there are books prior yeah. to TV. Um, not necessarily the other way around, and right. not usually the other way around. Um, well, you are not only a devoted reader, but you're a devoted teacher, and you've been engaged. You not only founded the writing workshops at Bennington, but um, have been um, instrumental in the founding and growth of the creative writing program here at Michigan. And I wonder, we'll talk a little bit about that in, in the next segment of the show, but before we cut to our break, um, have there been teachers who you felt were really important to you, um, who were engaged in the business of teaching, not just teaching um, through the words that they put on the page? Well, to bring this full circle to that sweet quote you offered early on, my teacher, in fact, was John Updike. Uh, and I saw him uh, on Monday. We had lunch together in Boston, and I said to him in private then, what I don't mind saying in public now, that he was exactly who and what I needed at the time. He was an elder and better who sort of said, welcome to the guild. You are um, someone to take seriously. And, um, <laughs> you know, in some ways, if I have any enduring importance as a writer, it may well be that uh, that I was such a difficult student that I <laughs> sent John kicking and screaming from the room and back to his house in Ipswich and decided to make a living um, uh, at his desk rather than in the classroom. So I've saved uh, generations of students from Updike's pedagogy and I'm his only <laughs> student. <laughs> you turned him off from teaching. That was it. You were the I did and, and made him make a living as an author. Um, <laughs> but for me, in fact, uh, it was the case that he and a few others I couldn't happily name if you'd like me to, were generous, open-handed, and attentive uh, when I was young. And I feel it almost my duty and certainly my, my desire to replicate that and to continue the passing on and passing down of that sense of uh, the literary life and I guess we can call it a tradition. If someone was helpful to you, you 
owe it to be helpful to others. Well, that's a good place to stop for a break. It's the top of the hour. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Nicholas Del Banco. We'll be right back. listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Nicholas Del Banco. We've been speaking about the writing life, his writing life, his um, teachers and um, on the page and literally, and about his um, several of his books, but in particular his most recent novel, The Vagabonds, which is just out in paperback. Was it November, I guess, that it came mm-hmm. out in paperback? Well, before the break, I mentioned that... Um, you were instrumental in the founding of the creative writing and, and building, growing of the of the creative writing program here at the University of Michigan, and um, s- continue to teach in the program and to chair the committee for the Avery Hopwood Awards. It's the 75th anniversary of the Hopwood Awards, and I wonder if you would sort of orient us to what's going on this year for the celebration and and what's what's all the what's all the hullabaloo? Who's Avery Hopwood and and, and what's going on? Well, again, it has something to do with what seems to have been our principal subject, the idea of legacy. Hopwood, who died unexpectedly and relatively early in his life, if not career, was a formidably successful playwright um, in principally the decade of the 1920s, started in the teens. He was graduated from Michigan 100 years ago, actually. Um, Literally 100 years ago. in 1905, so 101. Um, And he had the notion, which was then a plausible one, that the way to make a living as a writer was as a playwright. I mean, now you'd have to be a lunatic to think that, but this was, of course, before the movies or the uh, television. television. (laughs) In fact, I suspect that were he alive today, he would be a wildly successful screenwriter or sitcom uh, writer. But then he was a wildly successful Broadway playwright. He had four plays running on Broadway at once, for instance, in the 1920s. Um, He's the author. For movies, yes. um, Tomorrow night, which is to say Thursday the 9th, we are opening uh, for the first time in many, many years a Hopwood play uh, called The Gold Diggers. 7.30 7.30 at uh, the Lydia Mendelssohn Theater. Well worth seeing, I think. Uh, it's also going to run on Friday, Saturday, and on a Sunday matinee. And that was adapted by Busby Berkeley into a movie called The Gold Diggers of 1933, which ran at the Michigan Theater last week. This whole s- semester, uh, we've got a set and series of festivals and celebrations. Tonight uh, at 8 o'clock, there's 
uh, an opening of the Hopwood papers and the papers of those who've won Hopwood prizes at the Hatcher Library in the Rare Book and Manuscript Room. Tell us a little bit about the prizes because folks, there are a lot of folks who, in fact, I was just talking with my creative writing students last night. I said, have y'all heard about these prizes? And mm. because those of us who've come here to be MFA students right. have, of course, heard about these prizes, but a lot of students don't know about them. Yeah, I, I should back up a little bit. Hopwood uh, was, as I said, a wildly successful commercial playwright. He was kind of the Neil Simon of his time. He really understood how to entertain and get people on and off stage in time and so on and so forth. Anyway, when he died, he left a portion of his estate to the University of Michigan with the express purpose of encouraging the new, the remarkable, the radical in uh, creative writing. And if he hadn't done that, I expect there would have been a you know wing of the library called the Hopwood, or all the carpets in in, in the LSNA offices would be called the Avery Hopwood Memorial Carpet carpets. or something. <laughs> but he had, and this was notable, um, he had the idea of encouraging student creative work before anybody else. I think it's fair to say before anybody else had thought of it. And because it has been invested well and wisely and for a very long time, the Hopwood Awards are now very substantial. I mean, the committee has given out over $2 million in prize money since its inception uh, 75 years ago. Um, and that's extremely I, unusual. I mean, creative writing is not a place where there's a lot of money, um, except for a very few people. You hear about the big cases, but that's, that's remarkable right. for undergraduates and graduate students. There is no other program in the country that comes close. I mean, uh, we've given out over 3,000 prizes in total. I will give away more than $150,000 this year uh, in Uncle Avery's honor and to young writers in poetry and prose, short and long, and drama, screenplay, essay writing, etc. And all of this because he recognized at a certain point that this should be supported, and that certain point was well before anyone else had. So it's it's notable and worth honoring, and since I don't imagine I'll be around for the 100th anniversary of the Hopwood Awards. I wanted to I make a fuss I don't know. Your family is quite long-lived, <laughs> didn't you? <laughs> well, that is true, but, uh, but, but they won't want me to daughter onto stage <laughs> a quarter century. Hence, um, we are making a fuss about it, as I said. So tonight, for instance, there's an opening of the Hopwood uh, Papers. Arthur Miller was the most eminent, probably, of the Hopwood winners, but many others, people like Nancy Willard and Marge Piercy, have donated their papers to the University of Michigan Library, and they'll be on display uh, tomorrow night, the opening of a Hopwood play. The big celebration is in April, on April 21st, when our uh, colleague and um, previous member of the Hopwood Committee, Charles Baxter, will come back to town and talk about losers as opposed to the winners uh, that receive those awards uh, on that day, April 21st. We've invited as many Hopwood winners as are willing to come back to town uh, to return for a full-fledged, flat-out celebration of the thing. The University of Michigan Press is publishing an anthology of Hopwood winners. There'll be a special issue of the MQR, the Michigan Quarterly Review, devoted to more recent such uh, entries. Indeed, we're paying him the kind of attention 
that he amply deserves, but that I suspect also might have taken him by surprise in 1931 when this um, system began. Of course, he wasn't alive then to even witness its inception, but it has grown to being something to be something that of which the university is justifiably proud. Wonderful. Um, tonight, you mentioned that the opening is tonight. Where are the where is that? It's on the seventh floor of the Harlan Hatcher Graduate oh, okay. Library in the rare book and manuscript room. And the play tomorrow is at the Mendelssohn Theater. And uh, there are student tickets available. With student tickets available. And, um, and uh, tomorrow night, I think it opens at 7.30. On Saturday, on Friday and Saturday, it's at 8. And on Sunday, there's a matinee at 2. At 2. You shouldn't miss the chance to see this because it ain't going to come around so fast again. <laughs> well, I'm wondering, I, I, I want to... Um, there, there's a question I'm fishing for, and I haven't quite found it yet. That has to that will that will tie us back into there. But the place I would like to start is we spoke in the first two segments of the show about um, your career and how inheritance plays in, and how legacy plays in, and, and how you've you've developed um, your writing life. And I'm wondering, you've ranged a lot of of territory as the Hopwood winners have um, when. Charlie gives his talk, Charles Baxter gives his talk in April about the losers, mm-hmm. and we'll hear about the winners in between then and now and meet many of them at that reception in April. Um, it, it will be evidence that there is just this um, massive diversity of, of um, directions folks have taken. I wonder if, so the two-part question is, if you had to sort of pick a favorite of your work over the time, because you've ranged a bunch of territory on your own. If you had to pick a favorite, is there sort of like choosing the child, the, the favorite child I know? That's an awful question, but I, I would love it if you would do that, and I would love it if you would sort of also pick a favorite theme or manifestation or thing that's come out of this legacy that is the Hopwood program, um, and maybe we can talk about those two things together. It's possible to connect them, I hope. Um, It's the sort of disease that writers call health to think that every word they've written is rotten and every word they're about to write is terrific. So my favorite book is, of course, my next one, which will um, actually be published uh, next fall in uh, October. Yet another novel uh, will come out, and that's, of course, incomparably better than anything I've ever done before. Of course. Can you give us uh, a little indeed. preview? <laughs> well, it's called Spring and Fall, and I'll save that for our next such conversation. But um, I, I do think it, I mean, it will, of course, come to pass that I, like all other writers, look back and know that my best work is behind me. Um, these mornings when I get to the desk, uh, I still think it might be ahead of me. And that's probably a necessary um, illusion, if not Way delusion, writing, yes. uh, in order to keep writing. It would be difficult, uh, as I said, to engage in the deep paralysis of repetition or to feel that the best you're doing is a pale shadow of what you once did. So... Though I am fond in my separate ways of all my recent children um, and happy to have written a book of essays about travel or a book about the making of a cello or a novel about my personal history, as in What Remains, or The Country's Ditto, as in The Vagabonds, what I'm really after, of course, is what comes next, not what's behind. 
Is that, that similar to what's going on with the Hoppers? You mentioned um, well, Arthur Miller is the most um, eminent of the... Well, I think that's precisely uh, the connection I wanted to make, that the great thing about being uh, up there on the stage and handing out the, you know, the Oscar-like envelopes that say you're a winner is that you're facing forward, that people are um, beginning their careers, in a sense, by this recognition, and um, that there's a pretty good chance, indeed a statistical likelihood, that of the 30 or 40 winners of the Hopwood uh, this season, more than one of them will become a consequential writer um, in years and decades to come. So we're at the beginning of something as opposed to the continuation or the end of something. And that's always a delight to participate in. Well, it's been a delight to have you today. We are at the end, unfortunately, of our 45 minutes. So we're going to have to wrap it up. Um, I want to thank you, Nicholas Delbanco, for joining me today on The Living Writers Show. And I'd like to thank our engineer, Chaz Barrett, for doing such a wonderful job. And I'd like to thank you both.